Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily and happy Christmas. I'm Dorian Linsky. My guest today is one of the UK's most successful dramatists. Over the past decade, on stage and on screen, he's become a master of turning complicated political and cultural situations into popular entertainment. He's written about 1970s Westminster in this house, the birth of Rupert Murdoch's son in Inc., the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire scandal in Quiz, the Labour Party in Labour of Love, Welsh nationalism in an episode of The Crown, and you know what in Brexit, the uncivil war. His latest play for the young Vic is The Best of Enemies, which is about the 1968 TV debate between the Conservative William F. Buckley and the Liberal Gore Vidal. But as always, it's about a lot more than that. James Graham, thanks for joining me. Hi, you're welcome. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. So I went to see the play uh, last week. It was very exciting because we we spoke when you were in rehearsals and rewriting yes. the script. And I think possibly a lot of people who aren't that sort of familiar with the kind of processes of the theatre um, that might think that playwright sort of hands in the, the script and, and tells the actors do that. Um, and I just wondered how this play, I think all your plays do this, but it, how that evolved. Is it, is it more a case of adding or cutting or moving things around or what changes in rehearsal? Oh gosh, I wish it was that simple actually, as opposed to, you know, the thought of just uh, adding in a line here or cutting a scene <laughs> there. But actually it's, 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 it's more sort of existential than that. Well, at least it is for me. I think probably some playwrights do do what you suggest is, is the um, happier alternative, which is just to write the play in isolation and then deliver it on the first day. And, and then, it's, then it's simply an act of sitting there and watching a company of actors and, and creatives um, create uh, a version of what of what you've written, but I, I, for whatever reason, idiotically or, or geniusly, that's just not what I, I do. I actually discover what the story is that you're trying to tell in the room by having actors read it in front of you. You go through a process of absolute humiliation when you realise, oh, that's not working, or that doesn't make sense, or this scene doesn't contribute to the story, or that character doesn't have a purpose. And then you excavate and you offer and you make radical suggestions and and you tear it apart, basically. And at the very end, if you're really lucky uh, and surrounded by talented people, you might actually present to an audience on that first preview uh, a coherent and meaningful night out of the theatre. But it's not always guaranteed. (laughs) It sounds it sounds traumatic. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's also really nice. I mean, it's like, you know, you get to have audiences come and watch your play and you get to sit at the back with your white wine and then watch audiences laugh at your jokes and you get to dress up on opening night. So look, it's full of wonderful, brilliant, brilliant moments as well. But um, yeah, no, you just feel, you feel, a, I feel a personal responsibility uh, to uh, to the story, to, to working out what what is the most successful structuring of events and dialogue that characters can say to um to make it as meaningful and as impactful as possible particularly on a political level what are we going to say about the world and what what reason are we dragging people from their homes when they've got netflix and disney plus to come to a venue where they are trapped in a room for two hours what significance can you imbue with it and i think you have to work really hard to to earn that from an audience and most of your previous work is is sort of set in Britain. Um, a lot of it's relatively recent history. So you have that kind of privilege of being able to talk to some of the people involved. Here's like an American story. Um, none of the key players um, are still around. Was that more daunting? Did that feel like something new? Or did it feel like, well, look, I've d- I can, you know, you've done these political sort of stories before. So the, the lo- you know, the location, the context is not so different. 
Yeah, I'll be honest. I mean, this probably sounds really arrogant, but no, it wasn't any more, any less daunting than than other stuff I've done, even though, it, as you say, it's more removed from me than almost any other play set in the 1960s, which I wasn't, you know, I wasn't born in the 70s when this house was set, but I really wasn't born in the 60s and I really wasn't born in America. But in a way, I don't think that's how I access worlds. I, I access it through more sort of universal, broad themes and ideas than that. So no, I don't know what it was like to be in the streets of Chicago during the riots, but I do know what it's like to go on television and try and make a coherent point to an audience and be really nervous about that. Or I do know what it's like to get in, a, in an argument with a mate about a political issue. Or, you know, so you find what are the things that, that mean something to me and that's how I'm going to access it. And to be honest, I just get very, very excited about accessing institutions that I know nothing about at the outset and then you speak to people and you start to understand their character and their nature. So I had no idea how the whips office ran, a whips office ran when I started this house. And that was incredibly intimidating, largely because, as you know, whips don't talk. They don't publish memoirs. They don't let anyone come in. So it's this world of cloaked secrecy. And over the course of six, seven months, you just have to start persuading people to tell you how it runs. And it's those systems that I get dweebly um, yeah. excited about. And I enjoy the idea of getting an audience excited about the minutiae and the mechanics of the thing. So that's how I entered Best of Enemies. I, I went in through a door that felt safer to me, which was you've got an institution in crisis, i.e. the ABC television network, who, which was the lowest ranked network in the US. And they had to come up with a brand new idea in a sports movie way to use the limited finances to cover the 1968 presidential election. And they invented what would become known as sort of modern punditry television. And so that intellectual exercise, what were they doing? What was their mission? How did television work? How did conventions work? Uh, I didn't even know anything about that. So spending time in the seductive world of the Republican and the Democrat convention and how they operate. It's that stuff that I think is my way of slipping into worlds that feel slightly removed from me and the audience. Those debates were, were quite theatrical and brutal by the standards of 1968. And you, you get that sort of the newness of it and what some people felt was the coarseness of it at the time. But by today's standards, very highbrow, like some amazing sort of flights of, of rhetoric do you think that the, that these debates did enlighten viewers as to the as to sort of what was at stake these two visions of America or or just entertain them were they there for the kind of the catfight I'm I, I'm fairer than that because I do think you're right the the even though these debates are remembered mainly because of what they, where they descended to in the end uh, and very famously or probably not very famously to most people I don't assume most people. Um, know the end of this story. I only discovered it because of the documentary uh, that this play is inspired by. It descended famously in one of the very last debates that they had. Uh, Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley debated, I think, 10 times, five of the Democrat convention in Chicago. And prior to that, the Republican convention in, in Miami, they had 15 minutes every night on primetime network television, these two public intellectuals to dissect and analyse and try to make sense of the very um, intense political situation in 1968. Where it went to was a place of uh, shocking insult uh, with uh, Buckley, who defined himself by his dignity and his respectable conservatism, lost his temper and called Vidal a queer, 
and Vidal uh, had called Buckley uh, a Nazi. And these weren't traditionally slurs that you would hear on, on family television. Uh, but prior to that, I agree with you. I think, um, look, they were talking about what is the best economic system? What is the best taxation system? They even elevated it to the, meta- the, the philosophical and the spiritual level. You know, Buckley talked about the soul of America. So I do think this was kind of the kind of language and the kind of political discourse that you wouldn't hear on modern, certainly modern British television, which I think, generally speaking, gets reduced to talking points and overly simplistic binaries. And you use transcripts uh, of the public debates. Um, and so they, they've re- they wrote their own great dialogue in those bits. But obviously, <laughs> you have to imagine their off-camera moments. And this is, this is a challenge in all your work about, about public figures, but perhaps especially a play in which you're, you're seeing their their public personas within the play. You know, you're writing about Rupert Murdoch off camera, but there aren't lots of bits in ink where it's sort of on the record Murdoch. So how long does it take, I suppose, do you get to get a handle on their private voices, which are obviously going to be different, and yet you have to believe that that's how Gord Vidal would be talking to his mates? Yeah, that was the hardest part of it, I think. And so as you say, we have, we as a starting point, you have a you have great source material. These debates were recorded. You can watch them on YouTube, and the transcripts are in print. So I can I have that as my source material, uh, and that's great. That's brilliant. But th- you know that is their public persona, and it's quite performative. They are performing for the camera, uh, and they're ve- these are very heightened performances as well. I, I find them completely seductive, but they're also vaguely ridiculous. I mean, these men are talking in these sort of musical voices with strange inflections that go up and down, and it's like <laughs> it's like they're conducting a symphony. It's very weird. And also, they both adopt by, you know, by choice or not, these slightly mid-Atlantic, vaguely English, very patrician voices. It's, it's very weird. It's probably weird for 1968, but I love it. Um, but you can't rely entirely on that being their 100% three-dimensional characters. So yes, as you say, when um, they come off stage and go back to their hotel room, they belong completely to me. And I, I'm aware of the presumptuousness of uh, you know writing in these voices of these great titanic intellectuals. And also with someone like Gore Vidal, he's famous for his waspish, wittish, uh, impossibly witty barbs, and you think, how am I going to? Com- how how can I compete with that? I'm not going with Alan. And also, what does he say in the bath? What does he say when he's ordering room service? It's probably not, you know, really memorable bon mot. So it, I don't know. I, I was intimidated by that, but they're very distinct, very vivid voices. You know, when you're hearing a Buckley speech, that it's Buckley and how he sounds, and similarly Vidal. So you just have to watch reams and reams and reams of videos uh, of them, which thankfully they're available. And you, it, they, they start to seep into your brain, those rhythms uh, and those inflections, and, and then you begin to manifest them. And that's really, that's really fun. And also, you know, what purpose is theatre uh, at, at this table when you have documentary evidence? And I think the purpose is the humanity that you can bring to a story. These, these are human beings in all their glorious complications and contradictions. And when you get them on, you, on their own, I think you have to feel that. And that is where, of course, you generate empathy, which is sometimes harder to do, I would say, in a documentary than it is a play. Well, nothing that struck me um, watching the play is the way that it uses footage in certain places of the real people. And yet it doesn't feel there's no dissonance uh, for me, and I imagine most of the audience, that David Harewood and Charles Edwards don't look like Buckley and Vidal. Whereas I think in mm. something like the TV version of Quiz, 
it really matters that Michael Sheen is a convincing Chris Tarrant. What is it about theatre audiences that gives you that freedom with casting? What, what do people bring that enables you to sort of not worry so much as you would on television? Because rightly or wrongly, we still consider television to be a more naturalistic and, and literal medium because I think it looks like you're trying to replicate as accurately as possible, for example, the set on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And I don't think an audience necessarily would have an appetite for you doing some sort of strange, I don't know, German expressionistic version of Chris Tarrant as like a like a marionette or something. That's not the um, that's not the purpose or the point. And television, of course, is also a more populist medium, and rightly so. It's it's mass entertainment arriving into people's homes, and I think you want there to be as little friction between the audience's entertainment and the and the work as possible. Whereas theatre, obviously, is less literal. It does. It is more well, theatrical. You can do anything you want in, in any style you want. And I think it also has to be and can be and should be uh, more provocative. It can, it can punch harder. And so the casting, for example, as you mentioned, of William F. Buckley, a, a, a pro-segregationist conservative in, in the 50s and 60s, as a black man, creates a different access point for an audience. You are demanding the audience uh, not just sit back and watch a well-replicated simulation of a thing, you're putting a buffer in between them, which I think makes an audience sit forward and go, ha, so what's going on here? And it makes you it makes you access Buckley's politics and his identity in a different way. Apart, apart from the fact, of course, that I think David Harewood is a remarkable actor and it's great to get him back on stage after 12 years. So that really, I think, you're, I think it creates a bigger sense of event and it's more curious a play than a, than a naturalistic television drama. Quiz was one that I saw on TV, but I didn't actually see in the theatre. So there was therefore that something that did you have to change a lot for those kind of reasons that you're you're looking at a very different audience? Oh yeah, there was loads of yeah, and and like, Quiz was kind of batshit crazy on stage. I'm not. I, I mean, I, I'm open <laughs> to the idea that no, that none of it worked, but we got audiences to come, and it got you know. I was very proud of the production and the talent that that created the show. But what. A play does, of course, obvious thing to say, but a play is live. And I've always really, really, really believed that the the play version of any story has to tap into that liveness. It has to, the audience arriving at the play has to contribute in some way to the experience, was, was obviously you can't do that on television. So, for example, you know, it would have been absolutely scandalous uh, in a play version of a Who Wants to Be a Millionaire story to not get the audience to vote. That would have been unthinkable. So, of course, we gave the audience pads like they did on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and you have to vote a 50-50, were the characters innocent or guilty? That seemed like an... You know, it's not, that's just not a gimmick. I think that is a that is using the format of theatre to do a thing. And in that case, for me, it was about making the audience culpable in a story which is also about mob mentality and persuasion. So, oh, and also we did other crazy, I forget now, but oh my God, like we invited audience members onto the stage. We did like a history of um, game shows on stage. There was a, a, we did a version of Bullseye where we got audience members to come up and stand <laughs> at the hockey and throw a thing. And um, it was absolutely mad, but why not? Because theatre can do that. Obviously, the proposition of quiz on television was different. And for me, it became all about the narrative, story, 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 telling it like an Ocean's Eleven heist book, but set in Wiltshire and with encyclopedias. <laughs> yes, yes, there's, a, there's strong heist movie energy in that and, and in some of your other plays. Mm. 
Um, one of the characters in, in Best of Enemies says, I think in connection with Bobby Kennedy's uh, assassination, it's okay to feel complicated and contradictory things about things that are complicated and contradictory. And that felt to me like a sort of sentiment that runs in the, in the background of, of all your work. Yeah, I think that's true. I get sort of, I'm aware that there's something about that which always implies a kind of wet centrism, which makes me nervous because I'm meant to be a playwright and I'm meant to be attacking the establishment and then I have very clear views. And I think playwrights can do all those things. But in a way, I sometimes think the most radical thing we can suggest is the return of uncertainty and doubt in our politics. Uh, because obviously, and not, I know none of these are original thoughts and plenty of cleverer people have been on your podcast and discussed this all the time, but we are living in a world of polarised extremes in our politics, and I think it's overly simple, overly black and white, and desperately unkind. And, yeah, I, you know, I don't know how we fix that. I'm sure doing plays won't fix that, but I do think uh, political theatre uh, can also uh, celebrate the idea of empathy towards different points of view as opposed to just being entirely polemical, which is, I think, probably the perception of what political theatre is from most people, that it's generally extremely left-wing, very angry, very shouty, and tells you what to think. Never be my kind of theatre. Even though I still think there are absolutely universal accepted wrongs and injustices that we can all gather around and go, that's wrong, I'm angry about it, let's hit the streets. That's separate to me from the other problems we have in our, in our discourse, which I think is what the play is about. You've written like a dozen plays, I think, before This House. Um, it's about a decade ago. That one sort of not only made your name, but it seems like not that long afterwards, you were writing something on Broadway, you were writing a, a movie. And then and when you did a new play, there was so much more attention on it. And I mean, I, I saw this house. So you can sort of you can, I can see why it was a hit. But I wondered how much of that success or the sense of reaching a new audience you could have imagined when you were writing it, having having already kind of staged quite a lot of work. Yeah, that's true. I had done. I, I mainly worked on the fringes of theatre. In fact, it's called the Fringe, and I, I spent five years writing stupidly ambitious big plays for a tiny pub theatre. Uh, I did plays about the Suez Canal crisis when I was 22 years old. And come on, that's like, you meant to wait till your 70s to do things like that. But I just, I just really, I really wanted to do history. It wasn't even politics for me, it was history. I just loved history and stories and building up, up, up a mosaic of work that can start to make sense of our our past. Um, so actually, this house didn't feel like a departure to me, but it was at the National Theatre, which meant it got more attention and more audience members. And I guess this house, this wasn't my mission and we didn't know it was going to work, but it was almost um, a proof of concept that quite niche, nerdy political theatre set in slightly askew from the mainstream, um, you know, with characters no one had ever heard of. Uh, It wasn't prime ministers. It wasn't the famous people. It was unknown MPs from the 1970s backstage in the whip's office as a proof of concept of a if you want to call it a formula of work about strange worlds that exist in the shadows of our power, our political system, and that there was an audience for it and that you could apply to these stories. I hope, and I, this isn't just my my doing, it's my directors and my designers and the movement people and everybody, you can do it in a really unapologetically 
entertaining way. So you do have dance sequences and this house had a punk band and we had David Bowie songs. And, you know, to apply that stuff to a show about uh, our parliamentary system and whether it works or whether it should be reformed and that get an audience that was really, really surprising and thrilling and I hope has laid some groundwork for other playwrights and other artists to be able to confidently do slightly weird, odd, geeky plays and hope that it can get an audience. Yes, because I suppose there's always that. I mean, I think in any in any art form, there's always that that problem. Um, you know, whether you're kind of pitching a movie or you're trying to sell a book idea, is is you'll often hit those people going, "Well, people aren't interested in that. That's just not going to sell." And so every time something unusual is successful, it does seem to kind of nudge a door open so that you can't people can't say that doesn't work. Yeah, but I think you. I think you're right. And, uh, you know, ten year, ten fifteen years ago, I my memory of this, and I could be framing it for my own argument but my memory is that it was really really hard to pitch and get a commission on our national broadcasters for very 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 political work the feeling was that an audience doesn't want to come home from their hard day's work and be presented with the stories about real things that are very difficult to understand and hard and upsetting you know I have to Pay credit to people like Peter Morgan, uh, who who was the first one with the deal. Obviously, he wanted to write about New Labour, who were the government at the time. Uh, instead, of, and instead of going directly to the centre of that story or the immediate nature of that story, he very cleverly picked something slightly adjacent to it or to the uh, to the past. A meeting in a restaurant uh, between Blair and Brown, where they thrashed out who was going to be the leader. And that doesn't necessarily sound like the sexiest thing to tackle in the whole New Labour years, but it was genius because he treated it like it was an origin story. How did we get to where we know we are today? And then you write these parts and you get brilliant actors, Michael Sheen again and David Morrissey, who I'm also working with, to do these big performances. And, and, it's, and it's thrilling. And from then on, I don't think without that you would have had, you know, the American House of Cards with, uh, on Netflix, which I know pays, obviously com- comes from a legacy of, um, from Michael Dobbs, the British version here. But that, you know, that being a whip in, in, the, in Congress being the most popular show on Netflix for a couple of years, it's, uh, it's, it's thrilling to, to know that a lot of those executives in TV channels were wrong and that an audience does want sophisticated, thrilling, exciting political drama. And you were, when you were talking about things that you'd been writing uh, during lockdown, obviously there was The Best of Enemies and there was Sherwood, but there was also this screenplay for the movie version of Ink. I mean, some of these were not all obviously started in that time, but they were running along. Then this sort of stage musical with Elton John and Jake Shears that's been on, on the go for, for a few years, I think. And I wondered how you move between projects. Like, can you do multiple things in one week or do you need to sort of silo them off? Like, not, not now, Elton, I'm in 1968 and I can't, <laughs> I can't switch. That would be the ideal, yes. And then to an extent, you, are, you can sort of do that. You will, you will find yourself, generally speaking, 75% of your time is on the play that you're currently writing and that's your main focus. And that's also the main joy, to really, really immerse yourself in the world of uh, Chicago, 1968. That's such a, a genuine joy and a privilege. And you, you know, you get your Spotify playlist and you try and work out what that music's going to be. And you surround yourself with books and you print out images and put them on the wall. And it's great, but you aren't, as a playwright and screenwriter, you aren't always completely in control of your time. And sometimes the outside world will interject. And sometimes that will be a Zoom call with Elton John that, you know, you, you have to do this evening. And look, I'm not moaning about that. That's always thrilling. And I spend far too much time 
thinking about my Zoom background and what books are going to be on my shelf when he calls. And but you, what, but also what a privilege. I mean, I remember the moment when we asked him to write three new songs over the summer of lockdown, and we did that because he had to cancel his uh, his farewell tour around the world because of COVID. So he was home and he was bored, and we we, we got to really really focus on the um, on the musical, which we hadn't. It's hard to do when we're all in different parts of the world. The Zoom call when he came on and he said he'd got his three songs and he was going to play them to us and he was quite nervous and he, didn't, he hoped we liked them. And, and you're sitting there as remembering the, you know, the 14-year-old boy who would listen to Elton John in his bedroom in, in his mining town, hoping one day to become a playwright. And I know it's impossibly sentimental, so forgive me, but those moments are really special and weird and you have to pinch yourself and remind yourself that it's a great privilege to be able to accidentally find yourself in the company of these people because you don't i mean the musical seems like a, a a new thing but you you talk about selecting songs from 1968 and i'm i kind of don't want to mention specific ones because they're almost spoilers like the choice <laughs> the choice of the sort of the last song as you're leaving the theater i thought was kind of was kind of wonderful is that something that you would work out with the director or do you have a kind of playlist that, that goes with the with the script you can definitely make suggestions, but I, I actually can't take credit for any of that. And I'm, I'm only saying that because I know you've written very uh, brilliantly and eloquently about the power of these songs and these musics as a way of understanding the political and cultural moment that you're looking at. And again, the joy for me of theatre is that it's not a single voice. It's a complete collaboration. You have a director and you have a sound designer, you have a composer and those conversations often, you know, that take place in the pub after rehearsal where you're talking about songs and you're bashing around ideas. That's the, that's the complete thrill of doing a play. And uh, no, so I know, I know the song you're referring to and I can't take, I'm afraid, any credit for that. That's uh, Tom, our sound designer, and Jeremy, our director, and Ben, our musical composer. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you thought it had significance. And finally, this is your, this place, apart from Bubble, which you did in, in, in Nottingham as a kind of lockdown play. This is your sort of the first time you've had something properly back in a theatre since early 2020. And I've managed mm. to see a few plays over the last few months. But obviously now we're in sort of the, the age of Omicron. What's happening with this one and what's happening with theatre in, in general in this time where nothing's been officially closed by the government, but there's all this uncertainty? Well, it's the worst time for that reason. And I can't... I frankly can't believe we're back here it really felt like we turned a corner and it's very upsetting uh it, it's the thing that makes theater so special and glorious to loads of people is the thing that makes it completely impossible when you have an airborne virus uh, that travels based on people's proximity to one another you can do you know you can watch a film at home you can order food to your door you can't sit in a theater and watch a play and it's yeah, it's what makes it special, and we're in a gonna be returning to an incredibly tough time. As you say, the reason why this is particularly tough is because the government isn't legislating to close the theatres, but they are closing, and they're closing impossibly rapidly on a daily basis because the virus is surging through people, through our company, and through others. Um, so we ourselves aren't are going to unfortunately be closed for a lot of the run which is very upsetting for a show that um, has gone really well and we know that people really want to see and those actors have worked for six, seven weeks and want to do it 
I want to be performing and sharing the story with an audience. And of course, as you suggest, that we, because technically that is the show closing itself for reasons of safety, at the moment there'll be no help from the government. And I know we did get help last year and we are all grateful for that. And that was the right thing to do because we simply couldn't earn income for about 18 months and we needed help. Otherwise, theatre wouldn't have survived. And I'm glad that they made the decision to do that. There will have to be another decision in the coming weeks about what happens to theatres and particularly the freelancers who are not famous, who are not rich and make up about 200,000 people across the country and they won't be able to earn income during this time. As I know is the case with every sector, but, you know, for obvious reasons, theatre is always just completely hammered by this stuff. Yeah, because you were you were sort of one of the prominent campaigners for, for assistance last year. So are you going to have to get back on the, um, maybe not back on question time, but, but <laughs> back on the soapbox calling for um, for action? Yeah, I mean, at the very least, whinging and moaning on Twitter um, and just making sure that the, uh, you know, the MPs that follow me, and it's great, I'm great that I have a following, which includes commentators, journalists and politicians and legislators, understand the unique trauma that we're going to be in and... Um, and who knows, maybe this, you know, the spike will be high and then low. And I've no idea, but it's, um, we're about to enter a very, very depressing time and we all need help. James Graham, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. The Best of Enemies will be returning to the Young Vic in early 2022 uh, with some of the performances live streamed. For details, check the Young Vic website or our episode notes. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed our conversation, please help spread the word by telling a friend or giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. This is the last daily of 2021, so thank you for listening, making it such a big year for us. We'll be back on Tuesday, the 4th of Jan, with a Start Your Year edition of Start Your Week. And the first new panel of the show is on Wednesday, the 5th of Jan, or Tuesday if you're a Patreon person. In the meantime, why not use the break to catch up on some of the dailies you might have missed? There's nearly 500 of them, on everything from eating insects to why Libya explains the state of the world today. Uh, and some of my interviews, including people like George Saunders, Claire Tomlin and Rebecca Solnit. Thanks for all your support from the whole Bunker team. Have a great Christmas and a happy new year. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.